This is American Exception. I'm Aaron Good, and you're about to hear, at long last, a debate on the JFK assassination. As I mentioned on a previous episode, Robert Bazanko agreed to debate James Diogenio on this podcast. Bazanko is a professor of history at the University of Houston. He's also the author of Masters of War, Military, Dissent, and Politics in the Vietnam Era, as well as the co-host of the Green and Red podcast. James Diogenio is, of course, the screenwriter and co-creator of Oliver Stone's JFK Revisited Through the Looking Glass, as well as JFK Destiny Betrayed, a four-hour cut of the film, which is now available for digital purchase. James runs the fantastic Kennedys and King website and is the author of Destiny Betrayed, JFK Cuba and the Garrison Case, as well as The JFK Assassination, The Evidence Today. We plan to have some follow-up episodes related to subjects discussed in the debate that you're about to hear. If you are not a subscriber, please consider getting a subscription through our Patreon page. We already have many episodes on the JFK assassination and other topics that illuminate the deep politics of the U.S. empire. With all that said, let's hear the debate. Jim Diogenio, thank you so much for joining us for this debate. Nice to be here, Aaron. And Robert Bazanko, it's great to have you here also. Thanks, Aaron. Thanks for the invitation. This debate is going to start with some opening statements, and then we have a number of questions, six questions to be precise, that both of these people have seen uh, beforehand. So there's no real surprises here. Uh, after they give a three-minute answer to each of the questions, there will be a chance for rebuttal for two minutes uh, in response to the other person's answer to the question. And then once we are done with all the questions, we will have a three-minute closing statement from each person. So with that out of the way, let's begin uh, with Jim Diogenio, your opening statement about the JFK assassination and the controversy over the new JFK documentaries that you have co-created along with Oliver Stone. Um, you can start now and I will give you a little wave when you have 30 seconds left. My goal in participating in this debate um, is it's, it's, it's rather simple. Uh, Bob had Noam Chomsky on his show. And in my opinion, uh, to follow uh, Noam Chomsky on this case is sort of like the yellow brick road down to the Wizard of Oz, right? And some of the things that Chomsky said on that show, I, I have a very serious problem with uh, that being considered history because I don't consider Chomsky an historian, and he isn't an historian. Noam Chomsky is a polemicist, all right? On the show, he said... Somehow, Kennedy was the equivalent to Trump and Reagan. As I wrote in my reply, the day that Chomsky can show me where either of those two guys supported uh, Medicare, health care, and civil rights for black Americans, I'll see a parallel. Uh, for example, JFK went to work on civil rights the night he was inaugurated. And two months later, we had the first affirmative action order in the United States. That was in March. Okay, and that was extended later. All right, Kennedy was afraid of a negotiated settlement in Vietnam. Kennedy actually was trying for a negotiated settlement in Vietnam. 
you take a look at Gareth Porter's book, The Perils of Dominance, you'll see how he assigned this uh, through India with Averill Harriman. And Averill Harriman went ahead and betrayed Kennedy on that. But Kennedy was still trying for it because he told Roger Hilsman, I don't want any generals going into Vietnam because we're going to try and get a neutralization agreement like we did in Laos. That was in a letter that Hilsman wrote to the New York Times in January of 1992. Another thing that these two said was that Schlesinger and Sorensen changed their stories on Vietnam. This is pointless because uh, neither one of those guys was in the kitchen at the time the whole Vietnam thing was being uh, straightened out. All right. Kennedy very closely held his Vietnam policy. And the three major players were Maxwell Taylor, Bob McNamara, and McGeorge Bundy. All right. In October of 1963, they all knew that Kennedy was getting out. And then when they wrote their memoirs, they all said the same thing. Kennedy oversaw the biggest defense buildup ever, not even close. All right. Reagan doubled the defense budget, doubled it. And then W almost did the same. All right. Uh, so, but the worst one is that somehow Kennedy was equivalent to the rise of Nazism in Germany in the 1920s. I won't even comment on that. That's so ridiculous. Okay. That's, that's, uh, that's three minutes now. Uh, Robert, um, you can have your uh, opening statement. Yeah, I'm not going to defend Noam. He can do that himself. Um, in 1998, Booz Allen, the consultant, prepared a report for the Pentagon on declassification procedures on how to use the Internet, which was still fairly new, on declassification strategy. And it said it had to consider openness and cost-effectiveness, but a category was headed diversion. And it said that the government could list, and this is their quote, interesting declassified material, i.e. Kennedy assassination data. And that's the whole industry has been doing for nearly six decades, the conspiracy assassination industry, diverting attention from real history and from real politics and real crises to chase a chimera. Um, some people look for heroes and villains instead of doing a systematic analysis. Some people find conspiracies because reality is too comfortable or contrary to the answers that they find. Some people see dark forces in the deep state and don't consider doctrine, material conditions, hubris, caprice, or just plain incompetence. Uh, there's a real reason. Some people make movies and some people write history books. And that's what we're talking about here. Uh, essentially, a movie, which is a story. And the story isn't held to the same standards. And it's a story about a hero who was cut down in his prime by dark forces, which everybody wants. But it's just not so, no matter how many contortions you make, no matter how old interviews or new documents come out. And I'm not going to get bogged down in minutia and the tiny details of Oswald or <clears throat> bullets or Dallas. The real question here is actually from Oliver Stone himself in the scene where Jim Garrison says, I never realized Kennedy was so dangerous to the establishment. Is that why? This is the money quote. Well, that's the real question, isn't it? Why? The how and the who is just scenery for the public. Oswald, Ruby, Cuba, the mafia keeps them guessing like some kind of parlor game, prevents them from asking the most important question. Why? Why was Kennedy killed? Who benefited? Who has the power to cover it up? Why? The Kennedy assassination conspiracy industry suggests that the deep state feared that Kennedy had discovered the Cold War and a permanent wartime economy and subversion abroad and a society saturated in war. And by the way, don't defend his record on civil rights. That's a bad idea. He dragged his feet the entire time and had him killed before he could change all that. But there's a huge and unforgiving hole in everything you guys say. Kennedy's one of them. 
he was in and of that ruling class. He was Kennedy. He wasn't an apostate. He was a full member, full membership. And on top of that, there's no evidence. You cherry pick quotes and you put them out of context. I've studied this. I would suggest if you're really interested, look at Masters of War, which is 300 pages of how Kennedy and LBJ created policy. Uh, there's no evidence. You'd have to find evidence that the military and other government officials were breaking with him to the point where they would want him killed. That's that's these are you have fictions of the mind, not evidence. JFK is one of them. There's no proof that these people wanted him dead. They were his people. JFK was going to end the, the wartime economy and bring in an era of peace. That's ridiculous. You're trying to prove the most amazing conspiracy. You've created Schrodinger's Kennedy, who's trying to get out of Vietnam and end the Cold War while simultaneously ramping up intervention in Vietnam and trying to overthrow Castro and increasing the Cold War. And you open the box and you see a conspiracy and the rest of us see Kennedy. Okay, the first question that we're going to go into, which will build upon uh, elements of both of your opening statements. Uh, Robert, this will go to you first. And this deals with JFK and Vietnam. The question, was JFK withdrawing from Vietnam? Robert, you have three minutes, and then Jim will have three minutes, yeah, and look, then you can both respond. So This is an immense topic. Look at this, Masters of War, which goes into much more detail. The idea that Kennedy had epiphany on Vietnam and it's out on the war again, it just it has no evidence. So I'm going to say five things, and I'm going to do it very quickly so I won't be able to go into any detail. First, Kennedy's the tip, prototypical Cold Warrior of his era. He increased troops, uh, advisor from 800 to 16,000. He sent in armor, helicopters, crop destruction. Uh significantly expanded the RVNAF and the ARVN uh, with with uh, hundreds of millions of dollars. Second, and this is really critical, and I don't see this being focused on nearly enough, the coup. Kennedy's role in the coup is pivotal. Uh, if JFK is ready to withdraw or even minimize the war, then you don't sponsor a coup, which utterly destabilizes the country, leads to about a dozen governments in the next 16 uh, months. In August of 1963, Kennedy concluded, we're not really in a position to withdraw and said he'd rely on Hodge and Harkins to give him advice. He was deeply immersed in the planning for the coup. And you don't do that if you're thinking of getting out. You don't destabilize the system. And GM was his guy anyway. He had created him. Uh, and I'm not going to go into a lot of detail here, but the Taylor report and NSAM 263, you guys utterly misread. That was standard policy. There was never any intention of sending American troops into Vietnam. Taylor uh, on, on October 2nd said, this is a, a training program. We have to train the Vietnamese. That was always policy. And in fact, in all of those documents, there's a list of leverages to use against ZM and a list of coup possibilities. Again, that's not the action of somebody trying to get out of Vietnam. And SAM 263, if you want to talk about that later, I'd be glad to. Third, the interviews with Cronkite and Huntley, which Oliver Stone clipped and cherry picked in the movie. Uh, but during those two interviews in September, uh, Kennedy said, all we can do is help it. He said, I agree with those who say we should not withdraw. That would be a great mistake. A week later, he told Huntley the same thing. Withdrawal only makes it easy for the communists, I think we could say. And then, of course, there's the famous trademark speech he was going to give uh, in Dallas on November 22nd, which is incredibly hawkish. And again, that just look it up. Look it up. Just Google it. Fourth, and this is really crucial, and this is the basis of my own work, um, it's totally ignored. It's that the military itself, which is a group you guys contend was in part of this cabal against Kennedy, uh, the military establishment and, and the intelligence establishment, um, was never uh, against the war. I I'm sorry, in favor of the war. Uh, they, I've written a big book on it, so it would take far too long to, to discuss it in detail. Uh, David Shoup and George Decker, who were the Marine and uh, 
army leaders said they wanted no part of a war in Vietnam. Taylor himself said, I would not be associated with any program that concluded a commitment of U.S. armed forces. And that was in uh, September of 1963. Fifth, and this is important, there's continuity in policy and personnel. Uh, before and after November 22nd, 1963, Kennedy's people remained in their positions. Uh, most importantly, McNamara, Rusk, Gilpatrick, all the others. Uh, and policy did not change. As late as January 1965, Westmoreland was opposed to sending troops into Vietnam. That's William Westmoreland. Jim Diagenio, your response to this question, was JFK withdrawing from Vietnam? There were no combat troops in Vietnam on the day Kennedy was inaugurated. There were no combat troops in Vietnam on the day that he was killed. Three months after the Warren Commission volumes were filed, Johnson sent the first 3,500 combat troops ashore at Da Nang. By the end of that year, there were 170,000 combat troops in Vietnam. Kennedy was never going into Vietnam. Please show that slide I gave you with Gullion, with Edmund Gullion, Aaron. When Kennedy goes into Saigon in 1951, he has a very important meeting with Edmund Gullion. And Edmund Gullion tells him that, words of the effect, colonies will disappear soon. The French have lost the war. And if we come in and do the same thing, we will lose also. The home front is lost, and the same thing would happen to us, which is what happened, of course. Thank you, Aaron. You can take that down. So Kennedy understood from Edmund Gullion, from de Gaulle, from MacArthur, okay, from John Kenneth Galbraith, that there was no point in going to Vietnam to fight the war for them, all right? And at the first meeting in November 1961, when about four people suggested sending in combat troops, Robert Kennedy specifically stepped forward and said there will be no combat troops in Vietnam. And that was the end of it. From there, Kennedy planned on a way of getting out. So he sends Galbraith to Vietnam. Galbraith files three cables, advising him not to go into Vietnam. When Galbraith comes back in April, Kennedy tells him to go see McNamara, who Kennedy had arranged to run his withdrawal program. He does. Galbraith comes back and says he understood what, we, what you wanted. All right? Now, number three, SecDef meeting in 1962. He holds Harkins after, McNamara does, and tells him, start arranging schedules to get out of here. Harkins' jaw allegedly hit the floor. All right. Then in May of 1963, all right, please show the cover of that, Aaron. All right. The cover of the May 1963 SecDef meeting. All right. These records show that this scheduling of a withdrawal was proceeding. Go through about four or five of them. And they, everybody knows that Kennedy's getting out, according to these declassified records by the ARB. Then, after a trip by Taylor and McNamara, Kennedy rams the withdrawal program through. People really were, they were determined. Sullivan wanted to take it out of the plant, the withdrawal plant. Kennedy it forced them to put it back in. All right. And then he sends McNamara outside and to announce the withdrawal plan and tell him that means the helicopter, the helicopter pilots also. Now, on the other end, I can show how LBJ deliberately sandbagged everything. OK, he, in, in the tape we have in our film, you have him telling McNamara, what the hell do you think you're doing withdrawing from a war that you know you're losing? 
And then with NSAM 288, which every historian, every responsible historian says was a turning point because that planned major operations against North Vietnam. And that essentially uh, negated Kennedy's plan. Uh, Robert, if you can, uh, you have uh, a couple minutes to respond here. Yeah. Bring in 1951 quote in as Rich to say Kennedy didn't think Vietnam was a good idea. This is the guy who said it is our offspring. We cannot abandon it. This is a guy who kind of created ZM, uh, who sent in uh, no one sent in tr- combat troops. I even said that. Nobody anticipated sending in combat troops. Which, so you've kind of undermined your own argument. Nobody had that in idea. This is why, which is why NSAM 263 was not a, a shift in strategy. Uh, Taylor, in fact, had misgivings. I mean, uh, and so did McNamara. They were not gung-ho about the war. And, you know, if you read Masters of War, actually do some documentary research, then you would know that, you know, instead of chirping. I've seen all the documents you bring up, by the way. Um Kennedy was committed to victory, especially after the, the Bay of Pigs fiasco. Rostow said, you know, we need clean cut success in Vietnam to overcome the disasters of Laos and, and Cuba and, and even uh, the meeting in Geneva with uh, with Khrushchev. So, you know, I, 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 Kennedy continually uh, uh, committed more troops. In 1962, there was some sense that the war was going well. Uh, and there was some optimism that they might be able to to hand it over to the Vietnamese, which was always the plan. Uh, as far as LBJ goes, between November of 1963 and uh, the, the uh, first uh, deployment to Da Nang in uh, March of 1963, that's almost 18 months. And in that period, Johnson was not eager to go to war. He was getting the same counsel from the same people. By the way, the JCS was all appointed by JFK, as was McCone. These were Kennedy's people to suggest they had some... Uh, anger with Kennedy or Johnson about Vietnam. They were actually more dovish on Vietnam than either uh, uh, Kennedy or Johnson is. And I have a 300 pages there about that. So you're just, it's just, you're creating a fantasy. It's a fiction. Okay, Jim, you have two minutes now. He likes bringing up the Cronkite interview. That was in September of 1963. Kennedy does not announce the withdrawal plan until a month later. It does not become an NSAM until November. All right. This whole idea of, of, of victory in Vietnam, the whole thesis of John Newman's book is that Kennedy knew that we were losing. And there's a lot of evidence for this. Like Rufus Phillips told Kennedy there was no, uh, uh, there was no way that, uh, uh, that his plan in Vietnam was working. Or he told Mike Forrestal, we got about a 100 to 1 chance of winning this thing. When I get back from Dallas, we're going to talk about why the hell we were even there in the first place. All right. This whole thing about Johnson with NSAM 288, Johnson cemented the JCS role in going to war in Vietnam. He then assigned two people, William Sullivan and Bill Bundy, to plan on going to war in Vietnam. The Tonkin Gulf Resolution was written three months before the Tonkin Gulf thing happened. All right. And they actually say in there, we're looking for a causes belli. Okay. He told Kay Graham in June of 1964, I need you on my side because we're going to war in Vietnam. All right. The only reason he delayed is because he did not have his own mandate. And he said, I can't do this on Kennedy's time. I have to be elected on my own. All right. Now, he talks about Laos. They wanted to go into Laos. The Joint Chiefs wanted to go into Laos. 
And Kennedy said, no, we're not going into Laos. Okay. And it's very simple. Kennedy's philosophy is very simple. He doesn't think Laos and Vietnam are worth fighting for. Berlin is something different. Okay. The next question pertains to John Kennedy's Cuba policies, and it's related to an assertion that Robert made on his podcast. The question is, were the, G- were the Joint Chiefs really restraining JFK over Cuba or vice versa? Uh, Jim, you can start this question off with three minutes. Okay. All right. Kennedy was Kennedy was dealt a really bad hand on this because Eisenhower had approved the Cuba project, okay, before he left office. All right, and this was a way of getting rid of Castro. What happened was is that the plans for the infiltration of Cuba changed in the interregnum, okay? It went from a graduated infiltration of guerrillas into the island to an amphibious landing of a strike force, okay? The idea of this was to trigger an uprising, and Kennedy was lied to about both the program and also about what was going to happen as a result. He was told the people on the island uh, are in unison with us and they will rise up, okay, et cetera, you know, which ended up being BS. The night that it started to fail, Nixon told him, declare a beachhead, and invade because the Essex happened to be out there with these Skyhawk jet planes would have controlled the air. Kennedy didn't do it. That's a prototypical Cold Warrior, Nixon, not JFK. Now, another thing that, that, that they said on this show was that somehow Kennedy was involved in the CIA mafia plots to kill Castro. Again, this is utterly false. In the uh, ARB release CIA Inspector General report of 1967, at the end, it says, can we declare presidential approval for these plans? They answer their own question. The CIA answers their own question. No, we cannot in this case because we didn't have any presidential approval during the whole lifetime of the plan. Now, the reason that JFK appointed Bobby to run Mongoose was very simple because he didn't want to see it spin out of control like the Bay of Pigs did. But it did spin out of control. Because Lansdale and Lemnitzer brought up this nutty Northwoods operation, which was a classic false flag operation in order to invade Cuba. All right. By the way, that idea began under Eisenhower, and that's where Lemnitzer got it from. They tried to integrate it into Mongoose. Kennedy said no. Then Lemnitzer said, well, let's just go ahead and invade anyway. And Kennedy got rid of him. He made a mistake by sending him to NATO, because that's where Gladio was, and that's where Bill Harvey ended up. Okay, very unfortunate. We know what happened with the missile crisis. Uh, Kennedy took the least provocative position, all right? And towards the end, everybody was deserting him. Johnson says we should invade. Okay, he sends his brother to see Dobrynin, and they find a way out of this peacefully. After this, Kennedy tries for detente with Castro. Didn't trust the State Department, so it's Lisa Howard, Bill Atwood, and John Danielle, Castro's overjoyed. He says Kennedy will now be the best president since Lincoln. When his assassination happened, Castro said, this is bad news. Everything is going to change, which it did. Thank you. And Robert, you have three minutes. 
Yeah, I'd like to point out that what I say is based on documents, not interviews and anecdotes years later. Uh, <clears throat> Kennedy did pursue a policy that was put in place by Eisenhower. And during the debates, he actually went after Nixon for being soft on Cuba. The idea that Kennedy is lied to is just it's risible. Um, and I would suggest you look at all the stuff put out by the National Security Archives, which is a great repository and has several collections on Cuba, Bay of Pigs and Monuse and other topics like that. I never said JFK was in on the mafia's plot. JFK clearly knew about the subversion activities about Castro, the church committee, and there's a, a voluminous documentation on that suggests Kennedy was in the dark about all the attempts to, to get Castro. Uh, I mean, gives you less credibility than I thought you already had, which is, isn't much to begin with. Um, it's again, it's Schrodinger's Kennedy with Cuba. He's trying to make peace and get Castro killed and overturn communism in Cuba simultaneously. Uh, you know, when, he, when Trujillo was killed, Kennedy said, we have three uh, possibilities Keep, uh, you know, first, it'd be great if we could get a decent democratic regime. Second, a continuation of a Trujillo regime, a kind of dictatorship, or a Castro regime. And the Castro regime was not a possibility, so they would deal with dictatorships, preferably. Uh, and that was America's policy uh, throughout the, the entire region, really. Uh, in his first press conference in 1961, Kennedy called the Cubans aliens and said, so in answer to your question, we have no plan at present to resume diplomatic relations with Cuba because of the factors which were involved in that island. And don't forget the most vicious and long-standing embargo in global history was started in this time. Bay of Pigs was a strategic mess, but uh, according to the Kennedy Library's very own narrative, the disaster at the Bay of Pigs had a lasting impact on the Kennedy administration. Determined to make up for the failed invasion, the administration initiated Mongoose, a plan to sabotage and destabilize the Cuban government and economy, which included the possibility of assassinating Castro. That's from the Kennedy Library site. It's not me, all right? Uh, skipping ahead because the Camelot conspiracy complex likes to talk about this apparent epiphany after the missile crisis in uh, November. First of all, sabotage activities were going on in October of 1962. They didn't stop. There was a brief hiatus afterward because they wanted to, to bring the tensions down. In November of 1962, American officials said the problem of Cuban security transcends nuclear arms and purely military operations. Every communist is dangerous. Cuba directly affects all the small countries nearby. Uh, in March of 1963, Edwin Martin, who was the Assistant Secretary for Interstate uh, Inter American Affairs, said uh, we need to isolate Cuba from the uh, hemisphere and discredit the Cuban Revolution. Uh, in April of 1963, Bromley Smith from the NSC said Kennedy had decided to end his restraint and resume operations against uh, Cuba and Castro. McGeorge Bundy in May of 1963 said the United States would take unilaterally military action if necessary, to prevent a communist takeover. And on September 7th, these are from your documents, ARBB, an interview with the Brazilian embassy in Havana, Castro lashed out, calling Kennedy a Cretan, supporting terrorists, and vowed not to back down. And look at his last public words in Miami in November of uh, 1963, which were, which were hawkish and aggressive. All right, two minutes, uh, Jim, your response. There's no, look, JFK was not even aware of these plots. And in fact, they wouldn't have had to brief Bobby if he had been aware of him. All right. And then the CIA lied to Bobby by telling him they were over when, in fact, they weren't over. And the CIA knew they weren't over. The CIA knew that they were entering a new phase with Harvey and Rosselli. And they acknowledge this in the report themselves. All right. Now, Mongoose was really a bunch of boom and bang, as David Talbot says. All right. And it was done just so that uh, Castro would not go ahead and try and spend, spread communism into Latin America, all right? That was the reason for it, all right? There was never, it never even came close to doing what he says it's going to do, all right? 
Now, Atwood, in 19, when he was interviewed by Peter Cornblue for Cigar Aficionado, told him, and he was the second to last ambassador there, unofficial ambassador, he said, there's no doubt in my mind that if Kennedy was not killed, that we would have ended up with diplomatic relations with Cuba. All right. All right. Now, that's, you know, we haven't come close to having that since. So that's a pretty significant achievement. All right. The embargo he talks about, that was Alan Dulles's idea. All right. Okay. Now, he says, in a letter that Des Fitzgerald wrote to Lyndon Johnson uh, a little bit after Johnson took office, he said there were six operations in the whole second half of 1963. And he said, these are so pathetic that I would recommend you drop them because it's actually strengthening Castro's image on Cuba rather than weakening him. All right. All right. And even George Bundy said the same thing. The operations we had were just ridiculous. There were 50 guys with boats. All right. We were it was sort of like, uh, you know, uh, Albania going up against the United States. All right. Uh, And two minutes, uh, Robert. Yeah, again, um, you know, everything that you're saying is like so-and-so said to so-and-so and so-and-so said, you know, I'm aware of Atwood. That occurred on the same day uh, that uh, there was an operative in Paris getting a a silly poison pen. Uh, To suggest that Kennedy didn't know about these plots, it's like it's embarrassing to make that. These were well-known throughout government. Everybody, uh, you know, I've seen documents from people who weren't associated with it talking about Castro. I mean, the, the president of the United States didn't know about Plots of his own government, the CIA, to assassinate Fidel Castro time and time again. Come on, man. You know, you know, you don't believe that. That's that's, that's embarrassing, even for the stuff you guys come up with. Uh, and by the way, uh, the embargo officially was in play. I mean, Eisenhower actually created the embargo. Uh, you said Dulles wanted it. Dulles was fired in, in uh, December of 1961. The embargo was actually put in place in February of 1962. Kennedy did not have to be convinced of this. John Kennedy was a cold warrior. I mean, Again, yeah, there's just abundant documentary evidence on this. I would suggest the National <clears throat> Security Archive. Um, while the uh, missile crisis was taking place, there were sabotage activities. Afterward, uh, Kennedy's people said he's, he's done with the restraint, which they called restraint. Uh, and they continued to ratchet up. If you read every policy directive, uh, every national security memorandum in that period between uh, October 1962 and November of 1963, it's based on the presumption that Castro remains a danger. Castro is a threat throughout Latin America and that communism in Cuba has to be removed somehow. Uh, and, and activities can continue. You may call them pathetic and desperate, and they kind of were, but that wasn't because, you know, Kennedy wasn't committed to overturning <clears throat> Castro. Kennedy was a prototypical Cold Warrior, Cold War anti-communist, conservative, as I know, because uh, I, I actually, you know, studied this a great deal. Uh, conservative professors I had, conservative diplomats I've talked to, said, oh, yeah, Kennedy was a prototypical Cold War era. So it's, it's fiction. It's another fiction. The next question that we have pertains to Kennedy's policies in the third world. And Robert, you can start off here. Uh, the question is, were JFK's policies any different from that of Eisenhower 
and or LBJ. So three minutes, Robert. Um, there's a great deal of continuity here uh, throughout this entire period. Um, on uh, a second, I had something written down here. I wanted to grab here. There's a great deal of continuity, no doubt. Uh, you know, it's kind of funny. In, in one of your videos, you said, nobody has studied Kennedy's uh, policies outside of Vietnam and Cuba, except for me. I mean, come on, dude. I studied that. There's a, a massive literature on that. Uh, Kennedy's words about Dominican, I think, are important here. You know, we'd like to, we don't want a Trujillo, but we'll take that over a Castro uh, anytime. Brazil, Kennedy put into uh, motion uh, the uh, plot against Goulart in uh, 1962 and 63. It was consummated after Kennedy uh, was killed. Um, Kennedy laid the groundwork there. Uh, Ambassador Lincoln Gordon, early 1963, went to Goulart and said if he didn't get rid of anti-American politicians uh, from his inner circle, he would risk economic pressure and other political pressure from Washington, D.C. And from then on, from 19, early 1963 on, the CIA Department of State and the AFL-CIO, which was part of this, uh, worked in constant contact with anti-Goulart elements to create paramilitary groups and subvert the Brazilian labor movement. And Goulart was overthrown as Kennedy wanted him to be in 1964. Guiana, Kennedy showed no dovish epiphany there on Chetty Jagan who, uh, 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 this is rich, imperiled Latin America and the Alliance for Progress and threatened the security of the United States. Guiana threatened the security of the U.S. about as much as Grenada did in 1983. Uh, Guiana was part of a decolonization movement. Kennedy wanted to drag out the process, his words, undermine Joggins' campaign. U.S. agents in Guiana stirred up racial tensions uh, and embraced coup plotters who again came to power posthumously. Iraq. Kareem Kassim was overthrown in 1963, February, with a significant amount of uh, help from the United States. Kassim was a, a Nasserite who wanted to reunite with uh, Kuwait and also was getting aid from the Soviet Union, much like Nasser was in 1956. Kennedy increased pressure on Iraq and the CIA worked closely with the Ba'ath Party, which included a low-level functionary named Saddam Hussein and other groups to oust and execute uh, uh, Kareem Kassim in, in 1963. Uh, Kennedy provided the new regime with military equipment, weapons, agricultural surpluses, XM loans, encouraged private investment. And uh, we found out even the even the August New York Times admitted later, sent CIA people there to help uh, purge uh, communists who were executed. Uh, Indonesia, you like to make a, an issue out of that. Kennedy agreed that Indonesia could absorb Dutch New Guinea rather than see Sukarno further toward neutrality or the USSR. Kennedy's policies, in, in a, to a large measure, were conditioned by Khrushchev's vow to support wars of national liberation and, and uh, Mao Zedong's popularity post-Bandung. Kennedy understood you couldn't go in and just stomp your way through things. The goal remained the same. Same in Africa. Uh, he was more committed to the Azores than to uh, Mozambique and Angola. Jim, three minutes. Put up the slide of Kennedy getting the news of Lumumba's death. All right. This is supposed to be a prototypical cold warrior. Okay. He's just gotten the news that Patrice Lumumba has been executed. All right. And they did it three days before he entered office. All right. Because according to John Morton Blum, they knew that Kennedy would back Lumumba, which he would have if he regained power. Now, please put up the picture of Lumumba. You know, they say a picture is worth a thousand words. These two pictures are worth about two million words. All right. Because we know Eisenhower actually ordered the assassination of Patrice Lumumba. 
All right, so talk about a reversal of policy. All right, so Kennedy had this um, awakening with Edmund Gullion, and he decided that neither the Democrats or the Republicans had any real good ideas about how to treat the anti-colonialism in the third world, okay? And so he tried to figure out a policy all right, to do so. For example, in 1954, Nixon was the advance man for Operation Vulture. Kennedy said that, now this is ridiculous. You can't fight a guerrilla war uh, with atomic weapons. In 1956, he attacked both the Democrats and Republicans for not seeing that the third world struggle was not about, it was not about uh, communism. What it was about was nationalism, all right? And he got a letter from Stevenson's campaign. Don't make any more speeches for us unless you clear them in advance. All right, this is a prototypical Cold Warrior. All right, uh, show that Herbert Parmet quote. There you go. All right, Herbert Parmet is not a Kennedy philia, okay? But he even has to admit that Kennedy was involving, evolving into a spokesman for a more sophisticated view. He was beginning to call attention to the soft spot, to the frustration of a region that had long contended with colonial domination. Robert Shaw said the same thing in his book, uh, Kennedy in the Senate. He said Kennedy, his chief achievement in his Senate years was sponsoring a new way to address colonialism in the third world. Kennedy crosses the Rubicon in 1957 with the Algeria speech. He was attacked viciously in the press for this, okay, by a three-to-one margin. The next year, Kennedy buys a full-page ad in the New York Times for The Ugly American. The message of that book was, if all we had was anti-communism in the third world, we should fold up our tent and leave. Okay, uh, two minutes. Uh, Robert. Um, Kennedy's policies in Africa are certainly well known for a long time. You haven't said anything that Richard Mahoney didn't write in 1983 in JFK's ordeal in Africa. Uh, Kennedy, uh, uh, like a lot of people in that era, understood that the United States was starting to fade in the war for the, the hearts and minds of the global south and the, the less developed world. Uh, Khrushchev had promised uh, to support wars of liberation and decolonization, uh, as had um, Mao, and, and the spirit of Bandung was very strong in the third world. Cold War liberals uh, can be decolonizationers. That's not an issue. I mean, that was FDR. Part of liberalism is to try to create reform, to, to be able to uh, create areas for investment, uh, rather to, you know, to use dollars instead of bullets, as, as William Howard Taft put it. So Kennedy's programs toward Lumumba aren't shocking. And, and uh, but if you look, I said, you know, before he refused to do anything about Angola and Mozambique because American bases in the Azores were too important. So, you know, Kennedy's policies toward Lumumba, sure, they were a bit of, of a difference, but they're clearly within the standards of the Cold War. The Cold War wasn't just about uh, uh, power and liberalism really focuses a lot on not using military intervention, but in, upon using things like the cultural counteroffensive, coca colonization. So again, you know, if you look at what Kennedy to Latin America, especially, uh, it was really uh, uh, aggressive. Uh, the spirit of Monroeism remained really strong. Uh, you know, Monroe and the Cold War really are kind of the, the the foundations of what Kennedy did. He used the Exim Bank as a weapon to help his friends and hurt his enemies. 
Uh, he used the AFL-CIO uh, to subvert uh, Bolivia and, and Gu- I'm sorry, uh, Brazil and Guiana both. Uh, in Iraq, uh, he helped uh, usher in a, a bloodbath. Uh, his program toward Indonesia was based simply on containing the Soviet Union and uh, preventing Sukarno from uh, going further to the left. So there's nothing new in there. You haven't said anything new and nothing to acquit Kennedy of his Cold War bona fides. All right, Jim, your response for two minutes. Bradley Simpson is the foremost scholar on Indonesia in the United States. I think anybody who knows anything about that will admit that. We had him on our program, okay? He said, and he says it in his book, that the transition from Kennedy to Johnson was fatal for Sukarno, all right? And in fact, when Kennedy was killed, Sukarno was weeping, and he told the reporter why did they kill my friend John F. Kennedy? Notice he used the word they. Okay. All right. Now, same thing with Nasser in Egypt. After JFK was killed, Nasser went into a state of depression and he ordered Kennedy's funeral to be shown four times on Egyptian television. These guys knew the difference. Now, if Chomsky and Bazanko want to say they know better than Sukarno and Nasser, then why don't they just say that? Okay, why don't they just say that these guys are dumb in the third world? These guys who actually met Kennedy, all right, that they're they're completely uh, fooled, okay? But they didn't do that. Those 6,000 people who went into a church in Kenya that was built for about 500 people, <clears throat> they were all bamboozled too, right? Those uh, people down in Mexico, those peasants who built a garden on the Yucatan Peninsula, they were all wrong too, right? So all these people were wrong. Pazanko and Chomsky are right. I'm sorry, you know, that won't fly because it's not true. All right. All right. Kennedy was trying to take advantage of the Bandung Conference with a policy called engagement. In other words, we could outbid the Soviet Union because we were a richer country. We can give them more food. We can give them more credits, et cetera. All right. And he had, that was actually the policy. And you can read Robert Rocco's book, a very good book on that. Okay. So the next question gets into JFK and the Soviet Union. And we'll start off with Jim for three minutes. Was JFK trying to end the Cold War or ensure its continuation? Kennedy got off to a really bad start again on this. He should have never agreed to that Vienna conference because Khrushchev was determined to take advantage of what he perceived as a lack of nerve by Kennedy at the Bay of Pigs. All right, so Khrushchev, if you read this stuff, Khrushchev is essentially playing the tough guy, and he essentially wants to go ahead and make Berlin an issue. And this was a mistake on his part because, as I said earlier, To Kennedy, Laos and Vietnam were not important, okay? But Berlin was important to him because he saw Berlin as the key to the whole Western alliance, all right? So that ended up being a crisis point, and the Russians ended up building the Berlin Wall, and JFK said letter, letter, well, better a wall than a war. In my opinion, and the opinion of Graham Allison, who's the foremost scholar on this, 
Okay, this resulted in the missile crisis because Khrushchev was going to go ahead and make a bid to take Berlin in exchange for taking the missiles out. All right. Kennedy actually thought that. If you read the transcript there, that's what he thought also. Again, Kennedy would not would not give in on this, but he did use the least provocative alternative, all right, and <clears throat> which of course was the blockade. And that ended up solving the problem, right? And both sides gave in a little, all right? And it ended up being a fairly good resolution to a very bad situation. After this began the most remarkable exchange of letters, probably in diplomatic history, between Khrushchev and Kennedy, a planning for a detente and a reduction in missiles. It got even more remarkable when Norman Cousins got the Pope involved with this correspondence. And this is, and he wrote about it in his book, The Improbable Triumvirate. Cousins was probably the most zealous anti-nuclear activist in the United States. Can anybody imagine Eisenhower or Foster Dulles using some like Norman Cousins, you know, as a diplomatic attache? There's pictures of Cousins with his family in uh, Khrushchev's Dhaka in Russia in the film of President Betrayed. Now, Bazanko likes to say that somehow, uh, since the uh, partial missile uh, treaty was passed overwhelmingly, that it, the reason it was passed overwhelmingly was that Kennedy got Eisenhower to come in on it, and he got Dirksen to come in on it. I call that being, uh, you know, smart negotiations. All right, finally, Kennedy was the only guy willing to go head-to-head with Israel over atomic weapons. All right, and this resulted, uh, some people think, in the resignation of Ben-Gurion when Kennedy demanded biannual inspections of Demona. Okay, uh, Robert, you have three minutes. Let me just kind of go back. I, I know Brad Simpson quite well, and I like his work a lot. I would also suggest looking at George McTurnan, KN, and Clinton Fernandez on Indonesia. And uh, you actually agreed with my point that post-Bandung, Kennedy recognized the world had changed. Uh, you also ignore Eisenhower's uh, cross of iron speech, his military industrial speech. Eisenhower wanted to uh, cut defense budgets. So there's a great deal of continuity there. And I would also suggest you look at the documents from the Cold War International History Project, which are really quite uh, illuminating there. Uh, with regard to the Soviet Union and Europe, Kennedy was always a cold warrior. He increased defense spending to the biggest point at that point. Uh, obviously, Reagan and Bush came far after him, long after him. He always had a hard line against the Soviet Union, especially after Berlin. Uh, the idea that he had an epiphany after the missile crisis uh, wasn't, has no evidence. Khrushchev uh, had been reaching out to Kennedy from early 1961 onward. Uh, and uh, one of the uh, main points here is that Khrushchev understood there was a massive imbalance of power between uh, the United States and the Soviet Union. The Soviet Union was very, very weak compared to the United States. And Khrushchev knew that the U.S. had 20,000 nuclear uh, weapons to 1600. So Kennedy was right about the missile gap in the debates. It just the U.S. had it. Uh, Kennedy, uh, the U.S. had 275 major bases in 31 countries, 1.25 million uh, personnel abroad, and Kennedy used armed force 39 times in about three years. Uh, there was the hotline and the limited nuclear test ban treaty. Uh, the only reason I pointed out the test ban treaty had wide approval was to point out it wasn't that controversial. 
So it wasn't that difficult to do this. Wasn't somebody taking on the establishment. Your argument is that these people had him killed because they disagreed with him. And in fact, the JCS came around and they said the treaty is compatible with the security interests of the United States after meeting with Seaborg and after meeting with McNamara and um, McCone and other people. So you made my point for me once again. Uh, in June of 1962, the NSE said basic national security policy now and foreseeable future uh, U.S. military policy is a crucial determinant in the fate of the free community because our military strength is proportionally great and our command over resources and because the security of our allies is dependent on our strength and the will to exercise it. The planners did not anticipate the Soviet Union to take any aggressive action, yet the military buildups occurred. And this is throughout the Cold War. The U.S. was always aware it had overwhelming power over the Soviet Union. And the Soviet Union was aware of it. They knew that the U.S. knew and the U.S. knew that they knew. Uh, in Kennedy's 1963 State of the Union, he said uh, he could foresee no spectacular reversal in Moscow. He also proposed a multilateral force, which would have put uh, some Germans in control of nuclear forces. Uh, later that year in NSAM 270, he said that they would redeploy some troops. At the very same moment he did that, Dean Rusk was in Germany in Frankfurt. And he said, when we say that your defense is our defense, we mean it. Uh, we intend to maintain these divisions here as long as there are need for them. And under present circumstances, there is no doubt they will continue to be needed. They were staying. They weren't going anywhere. Okay, two minutes. Uh, your response, Jim. I, I, I'm just stupefied. How anybody can compare JFK and John Foster Dulles in a non-aligned world is just, uh, I really don't know what to say. Okay. The whole subject of Robert Rakove's book is to compare the two, all right, and how all of Kennedy's policies were changed afterwards. Same thing with Philip Muhlenbeck. So, you know, I, I, I just don't know what a hard line bringing in the Pope and Norman Cousins with a conversation with Khrushchev is a hard line. Okay. Kennedy kept up the talks at Geneva throughout his presidency. He did not leave. Okay, and he actually appointed a whole new agency of government to go ahead and negotiate um, this uh, this treaty that he so badly wanted. The reason Eisenhower wanted to go along with it is because he couldn't do it in eight years. Kennedy did it in less than three. All right. But don't give him any credit for that. All right. Um, also, it was Simonton who told Kennedy that there was a missile imbalance. And Kennedy made a mistake. And since he was secretary of the Air Force, he believed him. But Kennedy was at, at the famous uh, conference to blow up the world, all right, which James Galbraith wrote about in American Prospect. If you remember what happened there, Kennedy walked out and he told Dean Rusk, said, and we call ourselves the human race. All right. So that's what he thought of that in Atomic Advantage. Robert, go ahead. You have two minutes. Yeah, um, I think it's it's fascinating how often JFK didn't know, even though he was in the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, he didn't know this. You know, you know, but people cried for him. Of course they did. Everybody I know who talks about that, everyone I know who's older talks about it, talks about what a traumatic day that was. That doesn't indicate anything. Here's the point. You guys are saying that these people had him killed because he was such a threat and he was such a diversion. And you haven't said anything to indicate that. You basically agreed with my analysis of the situation. He did a few things different, which everybody knows about. Everybody knows that he didn't. He was traumatized by Lumumba's assassination. That's not new. You didn't come up with that. What can I say that I haven't said already? Kennedy was a cold warrior. 
He had overwhelming military strength that was crucial to America's defense posture. He wasn't eliminating any missile systems. He wasn't cutting defense budgets. In fact, uh, in all his public and document, you know, and you got to look at documents, not just books and conversations, you know, go into, you know, my, I, I looked in the, in the course of studying Vietnam, I looked at every, uh, I went to every archive relevant in the United States, all the presidential archives, all the military archives, you can't just like Edwin Guillaume, you know, that's, that's your source for all this stuff. It's, it's, it's not credible. It's not serious, frankly. Uh, Kennedy never shifted his policies uh, uh, on, uh, on Europe, if you look at the multilateral force, if you look at Nissan 270, uh, from his time in the Senate until the time of his life, they were based on traditional concepts, Cold War concepts, liberal concepts. There's nothing in the record to indicate he had any change of plans. And again, you're saying these people had him killed. And in order to have somebody killed, you have to have some pretty damn serious disagreements with him. And you just, there's no, nothing. You, there's nothing. It's invisible. You have nothing. All right. The next question deals with Lee Harvey Oswald. And what we have learned about him over the last few decades, do we know anything now that wasn't known at the time of the House Select Committee on Assassinations in the late 1970s? Uh, Robert, we will start with you. Yeah, I mean, I'm not a part of the kind of conspiracy Hollywood complex. So the granular details of Oswald's life were never of great consequence. Uh, The details of his whereabouts are what uh, Stone your friend called the scenery, some kind of parlor game. He says that, right? Oswald, Ruby, Cuba, the mafia, keep him guessing like some kind of parlor game. Prevents him from asking the most important question. Why? Why was Kennedy killed? Who benefited? Who has the power to cover it up? Uh, so if you say that the new documents give you more insight into Oswald, I'll, I'll agree with, I'll accept that. I, you know it way better than I do. I've looked at, I didn't read 18,000 documents and I never will because that stuff. So much. I mean, like urologist bills and, crazy rumors from the Australian embassy and things like that. What I want to talk about here, though, is the way documents are used, because the way you guys don't use them the right way. Documents are tools. They're not sacred text. I've been to every major presidential archive and repository and collected tens of thousands. I have 30 boxes of documents on Vietnam. Many are useful. Majority aren't. Uh, Often they simply retell something that were in the daily papers that day. Gabriel Coco once told me you could write a really good history of Vietnam just based on the New York Times. Uh, sometimes documents give you insight. Sometimes you can find that in the official records, often in the official records of the Joint Chiefs of Staff or DOD or NSC. It's not what's happening in smoke-filled rooms. The declassification system is also Byzantine, and it's impossible to understand. It's often done at the whim and caprice of an individual. I've done a huge number of mandatory records reviews, and more often than not, when I get the document, my first slide is this stuff should have never been classified in the first place. I've gotten silly stuff that was classified and never should have been. I often get stuff that's empty. It's just been redacted. I sometimes get documents 10 or 15 years later, and the Kennedy Library is actually the worst at this. And ironically, John Newman deposited his stuff there, which was really helpful uh, for me in determining that the military didn't want to be in Vietnam. Newman was actually really helpful to to me in that regard. Uh, But I'll get stuff 10, 15 years later, and it's redacted, or it's just something that's really very meaningful. Uh, I also find it ironic that a group of people who've dedicated their lives to rejecting the government's claims on Kennedy's assassination are now leaning heavily into these uh, uh, ARRB documents released. That's the very same government, the very same CIA and FBI you claim had Kennedy killed is now giving you documents, which you are assuming are credible. Uh, I've spent more time than I ever wanted to looking into these ARRB documents. I would have never done it if this hadn't come up. And they come from the CIA and FBI and other government agencies. So why would you suddenly have faith in government record keeping if they've lied to you since November 22nd, 1963, 
Why would they tell you the truth now? Um, uh, later on, I have a couple things about conspiracies I want to say, uh, because I think that that really is a distraction, especially for people on the left and for people who care about issues like peace and justice. You're looking for heroes rather than for uh, what's actually going on. Rolf. All right, Jim, you have uh, three minutes. If the audience forgot, the question was, um, do any more, do we know any more now about Lee Harvey Oswald than we did at the time of the House Select Committee on Assass Assassinations? The reason that's in there, because he made a uh, comment like that when he had Chomsky on. And to answer the question, uh, yes, we do. There were 2 million pages declassified by the ARB. And as John Newman says in the film, the FBI took its flash warning off the Oswald file after his alleged trip from Mexico City. James Angleton splits files on Oswald at the CIA. This resulted in Oswald not being on the security index for the Secret Service. That's new information, declassified by the ARB. <clears throat> in fact, today we wonder, did Oswald even go to Mexico City? All right, that's because the Lopez report, which was declassified by the ARB, shows no pictures of Oswald in either embassy in Mexico City. All right, and there should have been 10 of them. Why is there no tape of his voice? if the CIA had both embassies uh, wired, which, which they did. In an annex of the Lopez report, the question was, was Oswald an agent of the CIA? We don't have that today. Even today, we don't have it. Eddie Lopez was shocked that it had not been declassified. In fact, Eddie Lopez wanted to indict David Phillips and Ann Goodpasture for lying to him about Oswald in Mexico City. You won't find that in the House Select Committee volumes, like you won't find anything else I just said. We also learned that there was an anti-Fair Play for Cuba Committee program going on at both the CIA and the FBI. Now, that's really important because that's what Oswald appears to be doing in the summer of 1963 uh, in New Orleans. The guy who ran it for the CIA was David Phillips, assisted by James McCord. The guy who ran it for the FBI was Deke DeLoach. That's not in the House Select Committee volumes. In our film, we have Newman talking about Pete Begley, who was a high-level CIA officer. He looked at the routing of Oswald's file at CIA and said, this guy was a witting defector. And that's the conclusion that Betsy Wolf came to. And we never got her documents until 2005. She came to the conclusion that Oswald's file had been rigged before he went to the Soviet Union, all right? Somebody wanted to keep Oswald a secret inside the CIA, and that's not in the HSCA volumes either. Okay. Uh, Robert, you have two minutes to respond. Yeah. What Stone said is more scenery for the public as some kind of a parlor game. I didn't say the HCSA was the final word. I actually deferred to you. If you say there's new stuff in there, there's new stuff in there. My point is it doesn't change the story. And that this isn't, you know, you, you still, you're ignoring the, the whole issue of the motive. These people you claim, you and your, your, and Oliver Stone and the rest of you claim, had Kennedy killed at the highest. This is the greatest conspiracy of all time. And, you know, your motive, and then you, you go into this, this scenery in the parlor games. I don't really care about Oswald all that much. There was an anti-fair play for Cuba committee. Wow, there's a shock. 
Um, well, it was a communist. I mean, it wasn't a secret. I, if they followed him, fine. I mean, there were plenty of operatives. Both the U.S. and the Soviet Union and Cuba had spies and counter agents all over the place. Um, it doesn't change the story. Uh, there's a couple things I want to say here uh, about conspiracies because I think they're useful. And one comes from uh, Israel Feinstein Stone, who is, you know, I think arguably one of the greatest investigative journalists of all time. And uh, Izzy Stone always looked into the congressional record and he talked to people in the government. Uh, and he said, uh, in all my adult life as a newspaper man, I've been fighting in defense of the left and of a sane politics against conspiracy theories of history, character assassination, guilt by association, and demonology. And then more importantly, I want to talk about uh, somebody who's not a historian, but I think is one of the great minds of the 20th century, Stephen Jay Gould. <clears throat> and in his takedown of the Piltdown conspiracy, he said, coincidences recede into improbability and more and more as more and more independent items coagulate to form a pattern. The mark of any good theory is that it makes coordinated sense of a string of observations that are otherwise independent and inexplicable. Gould is a scientist, but good research is universal. It doesn't rely on interviews done years after the fact, third-person stories, uh, anecdotes about uh, conversations, books written by people in the same circle, people coming out of the woodwork, and long social media arguments over the detritus of a murder in Dallas. It's based on what actually happened, not alchemy. Jim, you have two minutes before we move on to the next question. I don't know what he's talking about when he says alchemy. Uh, everything that I said, you know, is proved by the declassified files. And everything I'm going to say in the next section is proven by the declassified files. All right. Uh, to quote Izzy Stone on the JFK case uh, is kind of ridiculous because Ray Marcus called up Izzy Stone. And he asked him, you know, why are you saying this stuff? Have you really studied the one commission volumes? Izzy Stone said, I don't give a damn about that case. And he hung up on him. And Ray said, you know something? If you would have said that, that would have been important. Okay. But you didn't. All right. What I'm talking about is not scenery. If Oswald was a CIA operative. Okay. And that fits into the whole CIA FBI operations against the fair play for Cuba committee. That is an important point because that means that Oswald was being set up in advance of the Kennedy assassination. And if you recall, all those films and pictures of Oswald in New Orleans get injected into the media the night of the assassination and on Saturday. And on Sunday, Oswald is dead. All right. Now, William Kent, who was a CIA operative out of J.M. Wade, working under George Joannidas, actually said this. He said, Oswald was a useful idiot. Okay? I mean, I, I don't know how much more clear you can get that on. And the fact that the CIA lied about George Joannidis being a CIA operations manager in 1963 to the House Select Committee when he was hired in 1978, I believe. All right? And he did probably more to sandbag the House Select Committee than anybody else. So this is not scenery. This is all integral to this story. Okay, we have our last question now, and this one will go to Jim first. The, Warrens, the Warren Commission's conclusion was based on a number of key findings that Lee Oswald, acting alone, killed President Kennedy and Officer J.D. Tippett, that Jack Ruby decided to kill Oswald on a lark, and that CE-399 caused seven wounds in two men. 
perhaps focusing on any of these aspects, how solid are the main pillars of the Warren Report in 2022? Jim. Well, we exploded the Warren Commission in our dark, especially in the second one, the four-hour version. Uh, as Richard Schweiker said, Senator Richard Schweiker said, who was a sub-chair of the Church Committee, the Warren Commission was meant to be pablum, fed to the American public, while a great cover-up then was enacted. And that, that is the case. Or there's no doubt about that today. All right. Oswald had a multi-layered alibi by three witnesses. All right. And they were Sandy Stiles, Vicki Adams, and Dorothy Garner. All right. He was not, he does not appear to have been on the sixth floor. He was not seen or not heard at the time that he should have been. The Warren Commission covered this up by never examining Dorothy Garner, all right, who was there the whole time. CE-399 was either switched or substituted, and we know that from the FBI's you know, own evidence. There was no identification by the first two witnesses who handled that bullet. Elmer Lee Todd's initials are not on the bullet like Hoover said they were. And how on earth that bullet got to FBI headquarters at 7.30 when the FBI messenger Todd didn't get it till an hour and 20 minutes later is something that is, will never, ever be answered. Okay. All right. We, we also proved that the pictures of Kennedy's brain in the National Archives cannot be Kennedy's brain. Okay. And we know that because of 11 witnesses who said much more of the brain was damaged and missing that's shown in those pictures and illustrations. Also, the weight of Kennedy's brain is above the norm. There's no way that should happen. It should be below the norm, which is 1,350 grams, because there's too much damage seen in the car, plus his head explodes in the Zapruder film, all right? And John Stringer, the official photographer, said he did not take those photos. We also have evidence of a front shot that the HSCA covered up. There was a gaping hole in the back of Kennedy's head, and the fragment path in Kennedy's brain uh, shows a front-to-back trajectory. Now, let's get to Mr. Bazanko's uh, complaint. Curtis LeMay called JFK more or less the Neville Chamberlain of the United States during the missile crisis. He compared what he was doing with Chamberlain in Munich. Now, what Curtis LeMay was doing on the day of the assassination escapes everyone. He lied about where he was. Okay, number one. He would not reply to his aide-de-camp when he was flying into Washington. He broke orders by not going to Andrews Air Force Base, instead going to National. And then finally, we have a witness who saw him at the autopsy. The autopsy, as we know, was conducted by those guys. It wasn't conducted by the autopsy doctors because they never dissected either the back wound or the skull wound. I don't see how you can get more of a high-level plot than that. Okay, Robert, you have three minutes. <laughs> yeah, more scenery and parlor games. Um, how many people are in on this? I mean, man, this is a big-ass conspiracy, and everybody remained quiet and nobody snitched on anybody else. That's stunning. I've never seen anything like it. Usually in my life, you know, I tell more than two people something, and it's out there. But this is really quite a, quite a story you guys are weaving. Um, I've never done any kind of deep dive into the Warren report uh, that you guys have, you two have. So I'm not going to say much about it. I'm not going to get into an argument about scenery and parlor games. I'm sure it has holes like any official report does, given the immensity of the event, assassination of a president. 
uh, they're bound to be unasked questions and overlooked ideas and missed signals and maybe intentionally. So uh, I suspect there are countless reasons for the weak parts of the Warren report. I, I have no dog in that hunt. Uh, but it's been almost 60 years, and we're still waiting for something definitive to come out of the Kennedy conspiracy complex. You have your true believers and your followers, but the vast majority of people, and I know you think we're all dupes of the CIA, but most people on the left don't accept your your uh, explanation of it. Um, it's also worth noting that a conspiracy to kill a president, as immense it would be, you know, and involving the military. As I said before, these guys were appointed by Kennedy, and they were close to Maxwell Taylor and Kennedy were really close friends, and, and Kennedy appointed him chair of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. James Gavin, who was a, a general, was an ambassador to France. Uh, the Army Chief of Staff was George Decker, appointed by Kennedy, who was very reluctant to go into Vietnam. Uh, the Marine Commandant was David Shoup, and later Wallace Green. Shoup was considered Kennedy's favorite uh, chief. Uh, Shoup was also uh, very re reluctant about the Bay of Pigs invasion. Uh, Shoup was against the war in Vietnam. Uh, Curtis LeMay was actually appointed by Kennedy. I did not know that LeMay had Kennedy killed. That's new to me, so... Uh, and uh, even LeMay on Vietnam, he, you know, he said he wanted to bomb him to the Stone Age because he didn't think it was a war worth fighting. And he didn't think Americans should be dying there. And McCone was appointed to the CIA after uh, Dulles was ousted. You know, Kennedy's youth and vigor uh, seemed to have seduced a lot of people. And I get that. He was a typical Cold War Democrat, though. If you want to credit him for seeing that Khrushchev and Mao had been getting attention in the post-Bandung world, that's fine, uh, as a lot of people at the time saw that. Remember, Nixon made overtures not that long after that to, to China and the Soviet Union. And it's really no different than FDR's approach to decolonization at the end of World War II. But understanding that your rivals are making an effective pitch to the third world doesn't make you a peacemaker. It doesn't. It means you're finding new strategies of hegemony. And it's certainly not grounds to have you murdered by your own state. Uh, that's the policy part of it. If Kennedy wasn't different. So what's the motive then? Uh, the people you invoke are, are secondary characters. You're invoking books. You know, go look at the, at the documents. Uh, you know, go look at the documents. I, I don't know what to say. Uh, you have zero evidence of motive. A Texas DA might indict a ham sandwich, but he no bill your case on this immense conspiracy. Right. Jim, you have two minutes. All right. First, he says, I don't have any evidence of a high level conspiracy. Now he says, I have too many people involved in the conspiracy. See, this is what the MSM does, okay? And it's very odd to see the left combining with the MSM on this, all right? There's a difference between the plot that killed Kennedy and the cover-up that took place after. Everybody and their mother was involved in the cover-up. You can just go ahead and read the Warren Commission volumes and see how bad the Warren Commission is, all right? And this is a distinction that is very important that he that that he wants to make. Then he says, the Warren Commission has some weak parts. I mean, come on, please. The whole Warren Commission is a joke today. It wouldn't last in court for five minutes because so many of the exhibits would be thrown out. All right. This is why they didn't give Oswald an attorney. Okay. This is why when Mark Lane asked to be his attorney, the Warren Commission turned it down. All right. Um, I, I don't know. Did he take a poll on the people on the left? Uh, who, who thinks it's a conspiracy, who doesn't. I've never seen that those poll results. Maxwell Taylor betrayed Kennedy because he was one of the guys who, when he came back from Saigon with McNamara, he was one of the guys who wanted to pull out the withdrawal program. That's in Newman's book, the 2017 edition. All right? Okay, and then Kennedy insisted it be put back in. All right? 
Now, Taylor might not have been for combat troops. It was all for bombing the North. All right. Okay. Shoup, I agree, was really the one guy on the Joint Chiefs that Kennedy liked. Okay. And Shoup ended up being a vigorous opponent of the war. All right. Uh, the two high level guys I believe involved, and I'll name them, this, this is what I think, uh, were LeMay on the Joint, Joint Chiefs and James Angleton at the CIA. So these guys always say, well, you, well it's a vacuous, you know, uh, breezy, you know, well, I just, I'm just on the record right now. That's what I'll say. Right. Okay. Robert, you have two minutes. You know, if it's a rebuttal to the Warren report, I just said, I don't really have a dog in this hunt. Uh, I do think that a conspiracy of, of this nature would involve uh, so many people would be so immense that it would be impossible to cover it up for 60 years. But that, I mean, he, you know, he keeps saying the same thing. It's based on all these sources that that are incredible. No, I've never taken a poll on the left. A lot of people on the left believe this, which is my concern. That's the reason I'm working on it. I would I wouldn't care about it otherwise. But it does have credibility because you have a very famous Hollywood uh, celebrity uh, taking, you know, uh, driving it. So, yeah, I think it's serious. I, I said among left people who study this, among people I know, it's there aren't. I mean, anybody who's really delved into the archives and looked at the records doesn't doesn't accept that. You know, I don't really care about the Warren Report. I know that the idea that somehow these deep, dark state forces. I mean, you throw MSM at me. I haven't thrown MAGA at you, but, you know, there are a lot of people. Uh, you know, I saw a video some years ago. Somebody sent it to me. And about the first eight minutes were all about the power of corporate America and everything it made sense. And then it drifted into two heroes who were going to save America, JFK and Trump. Right. And and, you know, I, that's where you guys are coming from. And I just don't look for hero worship. And uh, I don't see any evidence. I mean, how can I, you know, like I can't repudiate something that didn't happen. And that's kind of what you're doing. And you're using all kinds of sources. You talk about standing up in court. And you would, I mean, the court, I mean, the court would be on the conspiracy anyway. So, you know, you guys have no choice. You can't lose because everything is part of the cover up. We're going to go move on to the closing statements, wherein we can hopefully collectively make America great again with our rhetoric. And this one will start with uh, Robert for three minutes and then Jim for three minutes. So, uh, Robert. Can you uh, offer your closing statement, please? Sure. Again, if you want, like, the, the Kennedy, look at this, Masters of War, because I didn't do it justice today in the short amount of time. I don't have a whole lot to say. By the way, look at Taylor's 2 and 11 October reports in NSC and um, I think, you know, the last point I made a minute ago is, is relevant here. As somebody on the left who's committed to issues of justice and, and global stability and uh, avoiding war and peace and, and equality here at home, um, I think people waste their summer praying in vain for a savior, uh, whether it be uh, Bernie Sanders or uh, John F. Kennedy or whoever. And um, that's why this assassination conspiracy, which is so abundant and so big, is troubling because it, it uh, uh, eliminates uh, for a lot of people the idea that you need to go out and organize and analyze things. And it, it looks for somebody to come in and swoop down and save them. Um, I want to quote somebody here who dismissed the idea that Castro had anything to do with the Kennedy assassination. And I actually agree with that. Uh, in 2017, this person said, if you can't make your case in 54 years, I think you don't have one. You know who said that? You know who said that? That was you. That was you in 2017 in a speech. 
if you can't make your case in 54 years, I think you don't have one. Well, it's been 58 plus years now for the Kennedy conspiracy assassination industry, and we're still waiting. Uh, conspiracies distract us from organizing and activism and direct action and political action on the left. They look for a heroic figure rather than going into the streets. It's a great tool, especially for affluent liberals who don't want people questioning the system uh, which benefits them. So you use smoke and mirrors to see Kennedy as a savior rather than for what he was. Uh, someone who was a militarist and not unimportantly dragged his feet on civil rights at home. Uh, there is an immense uh, amount of archival uh, documentation on Kennedy and his role in the world. Uh, there are abundant numbers of books on it. There are famous movies and documentaries about it as well. Um, if you come into this uh, without uh, an investment in the kind of ideas that you guys like to spread, then it's not going to be hard to figure out what really happened. I don't really need to say much more than that. Um, the motive isn't there, and um, they keep diverting you with scenery for the public and guessing like it's some kind of parlor game. Uh, that's not how history should be done. I'm not a movie maker. I'm a historian. Okay, Jim, your uh, closing remarks for three minutes. I'm really glad he said that because this is a very serious problem I have. Okay. The Kennedy assassination is not a subject of left or right, okay? It's a subject of what is the evidence, all right? Okay, and, 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 and where do you get it from? And what does it say? That's what it should be about, all right? Um, the FBI, the CIA, and the Secret Service were all essentially bamboozling the, the Warren Commission. They also, the CIA ran up against Jim Garrison. The CIA bamboozled the HSCA. All these investigations were thwarted, were, were thwarted. Okay, so you want to ask yourself, well, how come? All right, does that indicate <clears throat> that this was a high-level plot or not? Uh, as does the fact that now, today, about 25 years after the ARB, there's still 14,000 pages that are still being classified, right? And both Trump and Biden went along with this delay, right? And so they failed to act. Why? Kennedy was a shock to the system in many, many ways. And the proof of that is that how many of his policies were reversed after he was killed, all right? And to name just some of them, Vietnam, the Middle East, Indonesia, where you ended up with uh, the slaughter of the PKI, over half a million people were killed, which Brad Simpson said that wouldn't have happened if Kennedy had lived. Okay. And in the Congo, where you had Johnson sending in these Operation 40 guys, these Cuban exiles, okay, to go ahead and crush the last of Lumumba's followers. All right. This is why Edmund Gullion quit that assignment, because a CIA agent who was a pilot at that time told me, Jim, you wouldn't have believed it. We took over the embassy, all right? Every one of those changes ended up being a disastrous result. In Vietnam, you had 3.8 million people killed total, all right? You, and then you had, the, he compares Nixon with Kennedy. I couldn't believe it. Nixon ordered the invasion of Cambodia and Laos. He drew up the Operation Duck Hook, which meant they were going to bomb the dikes and use atomic weapons in the north, all right? You won't see any of that. Even Kennedy didn't even want to talk about that stuff. 
All right, but you had about 2 million people dead as a result of Nixon's invasion of Cambodia. Very good book on this, William Shaw Cross uh, Sideshow. All right, so Nixon is your prototypical cold warrior. Kennedy ended up despising Nixon. All right, all right. And to even say that is not even being in the ballpark. It's working from a reasoning facility that is beyond the norms, I believe. All right. Robert Bazanko and James Eugenio, thank you both very much for going over all this material uh, for our listeners. And uh, uh, I appreciate you guys doing all this uh, for us. And uh, this was a, a good exercise, I think. So thank you both. All right. Thank you, Aaron. Thanks, Aaron. I appreciate it. I hope you found that debate interesting. We plan to follow up on this debate in future episodes in order to further discuss a number of the issues that were raised. I want to thank James Diogenio for agreeing to participate in this debate. If you have followed my work up to this point, you know where I stand on these issues. That said, I do also want to thank Robert Bazanko for his participation. None of the other critics of Oliver's and Jim's new documentary had the guts to debate it in public, but Robert did. Now we have some perspectives that can allow us to further our own critiques of the U.S. regime, a regime that includes a clandestine state, which by our reckoning has assassinated a number of progressive internationalist leaders around the world during the Cold War, including Patrice Lumumba, Dag Hammarskjöld, Malcolm X, Martin Luther King, and yes, John Kennedy and his brother, Robert Kennedy. Suffice it to say that we have plenty more to say about the JFK assassination and about the most powerful and deadly empire in human history. I want to thank Dana Chavari for engineering the audio and Casey Moore for his artwork. Thanks also to Mock Orange for providing our music. Keep chasing the light.